Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We trust those who've lived a long time to know a thing or two about life. One researcher found that the biggest regrets of older people's lives are often unresolved family estrangements. The brother they hadn't talked to for years or the mother they cut off. At the same time, those who've cut off contact often find more peace and stability in their lives. What we know is that millions of Americans have distanced themselves from a family member, but some people struggle for a lifetime with whether it's the right thing to do. We'll be talking about what happens when someone close to you drops out of your life or you need some space. And if you're estranged, is it time to reconcile or stick with your chosen family? That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. More than a quarter of Americans are estranged from a close family member, new research from Cornell University finds. The reasons for breaking off contact are familiar. Divides over money and values, abuse, mental health issues, the care of children or elders. But the consequences of these decisions, positive and negative, can be tremendous. These issues are complex and embedded within our society, The family structure is changing. We live in an individualistic country. And there are new powerful traditions of chosen family within LGBTQ plus communities. And of course, we want to hear your stories about navigating deep rifts within your own family. We're joined by a panel of experts. Uh, First up, Carl Pillemer. Professor, Human Development, Cornell University, Professor of Gerontology in Medicine, the Weill Cornell Medicine, and he's the author of Fault Lines, Fractured Families, and How to Mend Them. Welcome to the show, Carl. Oh, well, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Christina Sharp, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication and Director of the Family Communication and Relationships Lab at the University of Washington. Thanks for coming on, Christina. Thank you. And finally, we have Aretha Hampton, a licensed clinical social worker and sole proprietor of Roots Consultation Services in Berkeley. Welcome, Aretha. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on. Dr. Sharp, I want to start with your groundbreaking work on this subject. You wrote a series of papers drawing in part on in-depth interviews with 52 children, adult children, estranged from their parents. Why did you decide to study estrangement? Well, a lot of different families in the U.S., the U.S. family structures are, are changing. And um, often they're portrayed as like this nuclear family with like a heterosexual man and woman and their two children like in the media. But the average American family doesn't really look like that. And oftentimes when families look different than that nuclear family, they get stigmatized or marginalized or um, painted as second best. 
And when I started uh, thinking about this, I was asking myself the question, like, are these other types of families, adopted families, step families, like any less good than this ideal that people have in their mind? Like, are these nuclear families really the gold standard? And so I started studying estrangement um, as a way to kind of answer that question and really kind of illuminate the ways that regardless of whether you have blood ties or legal ties, families still might be going through a lot of difficulty. Oh, that's interesting. And how did you end up defining estrangement because it had been such a sort of understudied topic? Sure. So through a lot of interviews, I have at this point interviewed over like hundreds and hundreds of people and really kind of looking at the qualities that they describe when they talk about estrangement, um, it being voluntary and intentional, as opposed to something like incarceration, where maybe a third party has removed somebody, um, it being because of a negative relationship, typically that has been ongoing, like estrangement just doesn't happen um, with without reason. And um, thinking about the characteristics of estrangement in terms of like reduced quality and quantity of communication, um, the different emotions people might feel, the lack of reciprocity between people and even their own desire to be a family. Yeah. And so you don't see it as sort of like a binary, you either estranged or not estranged. No, I definitely view estrangement as a continuum where people are more or less estranged. Um, sometimes people feel like, well, are confused. Like maybe I'm not estranged because I still talk to them, you know, once a year or, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean someone's not estranged. It's more like whether you um, would answer yes to, like has someone intentionally voluntarily distanced themselves because of a negative relationship. Mm -hmm. And then they might be on an estrangement continuum, more or less so. Dr. Pilmer, um, I want to go to you. You got into this research through estrangement, kind of a, down a different pathway. You'd interviewed a lot of um, older folks, and as it turned out, estrangement was really one of their key regrets, right? Yeah, I was interviewing older people around the country for a project on understanding their practical wisdom for younger people. And one of the questions I asked them was, what do you regret and how can someone reach your age without regrets? I will say that 90 and 100 year olds did tell me that if you reach their age without any regrets, you probably haven't lived a very interesting life. But as I asked them about their regrets, I expected big ticket items like a failed business and a fair. And I wasn't prepared for how many of them noted an unresolved estrangement with one of their own parents, a child or a sibling as a source of great distress towards the end of life and a feeling that they couldn't resolve you know, the issues in that chapter of their life. And that set me out on a five-year uh, program of research to try to understand both the extent of estrangement and causes and consequences. And so how did you go about that? I mean, had any sort of large-scale survey been done of how many people really were in this situation? Well, I was astonished, and Christina is a great example, with the exception of some of her work, there had been almost no research on the topic. So when I started, there were fewer than a dozen of the gold standard referee journal articles. So I realized, you know, that this was a massively understudied problem. And one thing that we didn't know was precisely how much estrangement there is. 
If you look at the media, look at other accounts, you might imagine it's a media-created problem of the day, like so many other things are called epidemics. I wanted to see if that was true or not. Uh, so I did a true national random sample survey of 1,340 Americans, 18 and over, uh, around the country with good sort of racial and ethnic distribution. And numbers don't always speak for themselves, but in this case, we found that 27% of the population says that they have an estrangement. And unlike Christina, because you know, we all use different methods, my measures were more uh, extreme in the sense that we ask people, is there someone from whom you are currently estranged? That, that is, you have no contact at all with them now. And I was, I have to say, stunned by how many people report an active estrangement in their lives. Yeah. Aretha, how does estrangement show up for you in sort of a clinical setting when, when people come in? Does it, does it look the same across different cultures and sort of family types? It has nuances. I don't want to say that it looks the same, but there are some common themes. And people come to therapy wanting to explore what happened because it, there is a profound loss, not just loss of the relationship, but a part of a loss of their identity, of no longer being connected to this person or these people. And what does it mean for them? Hmm. What are the questions you ask someone when they're coming in and, and presenting this kind of situation to you? Oh, my goodness. There's so many questions. I ask, what does family and friendship mean to you? How do you define that? I ask about culture and values and norms and beliefs and practices. I also ask about trauma. Because one of the things when we think about estrangement, why do people separate themselves? I think about trauma and what has happened. Was there a family fight? Was there a difference in religion? Was there a difference in how people viewed money? Were there family secrets that came to the surface? Um, what, are the, what were the things that the person could no longer live with that would make them separate themselves? before they cut themselves off from their family or friends. Mm -hmm. Dr. Sharp, in your research, have you come to a position on reconciliation and, and how and when people should approach that sort of um, maneuver? I would say that it's estrangement is very um, individual for people and where sometimes reconciliation is viable, sometimes it's not. And it, I think that often depends on the reasons for the distance in the first place. Um, for example, issues like substance abuse, a person might be able to seek help and the family might be able to reconcile. But in certain instances where people are being um, physically or sexually abused, that might never be a viable or um positive option. So it, I think it really depends on people's individual situations. Mm -hmm. Dr. Pillimer, did you, do you have the same uh, opinions about or re researched uh, knowledge around um, the power of, or lack thereof of reconciliation? It's really a great question. I definitely agree that it's a highly individual decision. And in 
my book, I talk about the process that someone might go through as they're deciding whether to reconcile. Certainly also suggest that they talk to people like Aretha as they're going through this process to understand what they have to lose and gain by reconciling. I uh, found in my studies, because I focused more than most previous studies on people who had successfully reconciled. So I wound up interviewing over 100 individuals who reconciled after one, 10 or 20 or more years. And the one thing I did find with them is people who worked through that process and really dug deep into the issues um, in their family often found it a very powerful engine for personal growth. So not everyone should do it, but the, those people who did invest the time and energy to bridge the rift with a relative, even after many years, often found it to be an extremely positive experience, even if the relationship itself remained imperfect. So I definitely agree, it's gotta be done carefully, often with the help of a therapist, but there are many people who thought that they would never reconcile who found it to be an astonishingly positive experience once mm-hmm. they did. We're talking about familial estrangement and why people break off contact with family members with Carl Pillimer, professor at Cornell University, Christina Sharp, professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Washington, and Aretha Hampton, a licensed clinical social worker. Have you cut off a family member? or have been been cut off. Would you like to repair that bond or are you happy with the way things are? We want to hear from you. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More forum after the break. Thank you. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about familial estrangement and why people break off contact with family members. We're joined by Carl Pillimer, professor at Cornell University, Christina Sharp, director of the Family Communication and Relationships Lab at the University of Washington, and Aretha Hampton, a licensed clinical social worker and proprietor of Roots Consultation Services in Berkeley. We have a comment uh, from Michael. Uh, Michael says, the problem for me was having to take sides after a rift. Something her uncle said or did when my mother's sister was pregnant for the first time set her against him to the point where we dared not talk to him for fear of antagonizing her. Um, Aretha, I want to ask you, what happens in a family, sort of the sort of collateral damage around an estrangement when other family members sort of have to change their behavior as a result of two people in the family not talking? It's so unfortunate because no one wins. And when people feel like they have to take sides, then we're talking about values of loyalty. 
um, feeling responsible for keeping the family together. And if they don't take a side, if they stay neutral or step into a place of drawing a boundary, a fear of letting the family down or being a part of the reason that the family isn't getting along. And so I encourage people that when that happens to take a step back and pause, reflect what will my actions add or take away? And what does it mean? And when do we hold our tongues when someone says something inappropriate? Part of estrangement is people stepping back and not feeling like they can say the truth Mm -hmm. in those situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Sharp, you know, Talking about truth, one of the things as I was, you know, telling friends about the show that I kept hearing over and over, I mean, there were kind of two main scenarios that seemed to lead to estrangement here in the Bay that that people talked about at least. Um, one was LGBTQ plus people kind of dealing with uh, transphobic or homophobic family members. And the other were people who ended up going politically to very dark places, you know, white white nationalists or other kinds of um, extreme ideologies. Do Does estrangement normally happen through, if there is a normal, through kind of these more social and political um, movements, or is it usually more of the very personal inside of family kind of traumas? Well, you know, I'd be really interested to hear what uh, Carl has to say about this as well, considering his uh, more nationally represented sample. Um, but I would say that I've I've done I'm doing a study right now on um, queer adolescents who've been distanced from their rejected by their parents and people with political differences. But I also heard a ton of people talk to me about uh, physical abuse, psychological abuse. So I would say that I'm not hearing more of one than the other, but it's usually something um, very personal um, and very serious to that person. Dr. Pillimer? Yeah, I think that Christina's right. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, this multi-perspectivity, depending on how you look at it. The one thing we've discovered is it's very hard to talk about causes or risk factors for estrangement. And it's easier to talk about diverse pathways. Um, And one of those pathways is definitely conflicts over values. So in our normal outside of the family human relationships, we gravitate towards people, as research shows us, who have similar values, and we stay away from people who are very different from us in our values. We found that those same processes operate in families. So issues around um, you know, lifestyle choices or um, other uh, religious beliefs or political beliefs do come into play when they represent a clash in values that is very hard to overcome. So in some ways, these family relationships are a little similar to other social relationships in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we also find other pathways, maybe more than in Christina's work that I would call situational. So problematic in-laws, fights over uh, uh, um, inheritance and wills, for example. So, you know, they're both, I think, these deep rooted uh, pathways, but also people do become estranged for more immediate and proximal reasons. Got it. 
Let's bring in some callers. Um, Michael in Oakland, go ahead. Hi, how's it going? Good, thanks for coming on. Hi, yeah, I, I, for Carl, I didn't know uh, your last name. I would call your doctor your last name, but... Um, Dr. Carl's uh, fine, yeah. I think, yeah. Or just Dr. Carl's. Carl works. Um, <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was a doctor, so I learned that early on. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I guess not to take issue with your point that there is great relief in resolving estrangement, but um, I have an undiagnosed parent who I believe has a, a borderline personality disorder or cluster B, and, you know, I am gay. My mother was very accepting of me as a child, but as an adult, you know, she cycles, and when she gets to a point to where she feels, you know, she is not being, quote-unquote, paid back or treated the way she thinks should be treated, um, things spiral very quickly, and we've repeated the same pattern over and over and over again. I'm, I'm fairly successful. My mother used to be and has, of course, spiraled her way down further and further and further to where she needs people to help her. And because she spiraled so many times, very few people will. And each time she comes to stay with us, um, it, it, it turns into a knockdown, knockdown, drag out fight. And, you know, the irony is as an adult, I'm very open-minded. I'm okay with people's political differences. I don't need to, people to agree with me because my mother is so nuts. The only way to deal with her is to come at everything sideways and be open-minded. But the last time I saw her, um, she snapped on my partner and I punched him in the face, told him, uh, he is a sociopath and that, um, called us both, uh, gay slurs and hoped that we would die on a car accident on the way home and that she should have had an abortion with us. Meanwhile, two weeks later on Facebook is talking about her handsome and successful son. So, you know, Oof. yes, I do. I think there are many estrangements where it is healthy to, resolve and move forward but there are a lot of ones where the best thing to do is to step away it's not only better for me and for my family but it's better for her yeah thank you for thank you for sharing that michael uh, that is tough to imagine and hear um aretha you know michael was talking about um his mother possibly having bipolar disorder how much do you think sort of a rising understanding of mental health has kind of changed people's relationships to their families because they're sort of able to say, well, maybe this isn't a healthy relationship because this person is actually suffering from an illness that is untreated? Well, there is an increased awareness in mental health and mental wellness in our country. And at the same time, with that awareness, increased awareness, there is the very personal relationship that people have with loved ones who either they themselves have a mental health challenge or they are witnessing someone's mental health challenge. And coming to a place and making the decision that they can only do as much as they possibly can and when to pass the baton to someone else because the behaviors are so egregious and harmful that staying in relationship is devastating to who they are as a person. And so more and more people are going to support groups and making agreements with other family members, protecting themselves, but also being able to recognize that, you know, they can't save anyone that the person with the challenge has a certain level of responsibility and that other family members may be able to help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Let's bring in Aziza from East Oakland. Welcome to the show, Aziza. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, my name's Aziza. Um, I am an Oakland native, and I was just driving my daughter to camp, and I was listening to the show, and I was like, I have a story about family estrangement. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar in my late 30s. I'm in my early 40s now, mm-hmm. and fortunately, I've been able to present um, very well. Um, I'm a barred attorney. I'm a mother of three, very active in the community. But in 2019, um, I had a change in insurance. I was going through a divorce. I got kicked off insurance, a lot of laps, um, a lot of stressors in my life that led to a manic episode. Um, my family didn't fully know how to address it. I'm able to use those terms now. It was always noted my diagnosis, but it was never really discussed or mentioned. It was always like that thing, that thing. But they they did something that just harmed me in ways that are still hard to deal with. They took my children um, under the guise of taking them to ice cream and gave them to my ex-husband, a known abuser. And I didn't see my children for six months. Hmm. I was... Um, I was institutionalized. Um, I was able to get out uh, pretty easy. Um, By the time that I received some support, I I was beyond the bad part. But the the violation that happened to me sent me in a spiral that I couldn't even understand until I was further diagnosed with PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to go to court, fight for my children, get them back, but the rifts in our relationship now are such that I'm doing the ramifications of things beyond my control. And I, I, I just, I blamed myself so much for so long for something beyond my control. Um, I, I, I was just functioning you know, as the best I could. And as this, as this illness is, sometimes it gets the best of you. Mm-hmm. I became very active um, with um, NAMI, National Association of Mental Illness, along as um, Berkeley Depression Bipolar Support Association. And by attending the meetings that, you know, became on Zoom and things like that, I got so much um, support. But there was the it was such a continued theme in the room about just the harms placed upon us for things beyond our control. Yeah. Um, again, I am, am on the other side of it. But I've yet to hear from any of my family members. I have yet to hear from any of them. They are very prominent in the community, both the Bay Area. And it just it just pains me to this day that no one could they could do something so awful but never do anything to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Like my my children still talk about the day they got kidnapped. Yet no one has done anything to help resolve it. Yeah. And it makes you feel so worthless. And it makes you feel so invalidated. And so powerless. And yes, thank you. Yeah, Aziz, I'm glad you've got your health back and that your kids are safe. And I, I think Aretha, I just have to come to you um, in a when you hear a story like Aziza's. What do you say? I say, Aziza, thank you for your 
bravery to share your story today. I say thank you for doing the things that you had to do to take care of yourself and take care of your children and to be fully present for your children um, to help them heal. Because when these things happen, it's not just the person, the adult, it's the whole family, especially the children, what the children witness, what they see. And I do wanna give a shout out to NAMI because they're a great organization helping individuals and families when there's mental health challenges. You know, there are times when reconciliation is appropriate and there's times when there isn't. Um, and a person in order to go down that path to talk about healing with family members, to have that discussion, they need to have the support in order to open that wound. Because when we talk about what happened, um, it's re-traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And we want people to feel safe and secure in telling their story to people family who may or may not be willing to listen and what to do, how to take care of themselves when they begin that journey. Mm -hmm. uh, a listener writes, please talk about estrangement in the case of a truly emotionally abusive family member in a legit clinical sense. That is my situation. Although part of me regrets the situation itself, I mostly feel for the first time ever since cutting off contact and don't regret it. I kind of resent the pressure from society to reconcile. It's not always the best thing. Dr. Sharp, I, I want to come to you on this. In fact, is one of the things that you've written in your research is we wouldn't tell our friends to go back to an abusive relationship, but we give that advice about family all the time. And I want you to just reflect on that a little bit. Like there is something different about family or, or is there not? So I, one of the things I, say all the time, I maybe sound like a broken record, is that estrangement can be a healthy solution to an unhealthy relationship. And in our culture, we have lots of messages that, you know, a family is forever. We think that um, because we base so much of our definitions of family in blood ties, you know, it creates a sense of obligation that people feel, um, but in some ways, especially as, you know, we're adults, like all relationships take hard work and we have to, you know, treat each other well um, in order to, to maintain those relationships. And we can't just fall back on things like legal ties or blood ties to like keep something intact um, when people are behaving in um, ab abusive ways. And so um, oftentimes I would say that estrangement um isn't like always this bad thing. Like when, when people hear that another person's estranged, they always go to, I'm so sorry. But sometimes it's really a, a positive thing that someone was able to create a healthy boundary that was um, enabled them to leave an abusive relationship. So I think culturally it, it could be useful to um, listen to someone's story first before we offer condolences or try to recommend a reconciliation because accomplishing distance is really tough, but maintaining it is often even harder. So 
without that maintenance, people end up in this on again, off again relationship until they're finally able to maintain the distance that's right for them. And so um, I think we like to think that family relationships are really somehow fundamentally different than other relationships. And I think at the cultural level, that's true. But I think the more we recognize that the important, uh, a key component of having a healthy relationship is treating each other well, you know, um, we might be able to shift that idea of what a family is. Um, Alexis, might I, I, sorry to pick, go ahead, Dr. Pilmer. Respond. I mean, the one thing I never quite understand though, in these discussions, and we've spent maybe half the time on extraordinarily troubled, uh, difficult situations in which, yes, most people would agree the kind of situations we've heard about, especially ones that involve abuse, violence, et cetera, either have no business being reconciled or only should be done so under very specific situations. But I will tell you from our surveys, millions of people are lying awake at night in situations that aren't like that. They're in a situation where they've rejected a child or had fights because of that child's choice of partner. They have rejected someone for other reasons, and they're debating whether to reconcile in less pathological situations. That's where I don't think, and I think though Aretha dealt with this a bit, that those are the people we have to reach in some way who aren't in those extremely damaging situations, but really would like to have a bond with their family members again. So I'm not sure if the whole thing should be framed around, yes, there are some people who it's great for them not to reconcile. That's true, but I think it's a small part of the picture. We will be talking more about reconciliation after the break with Dr. Carl Pilmer, uh, professor at Cornell, Christina Sharp at the University of Washington, and Aretha Hampton, a licensed clinical social worker. More forum after the break. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about familial estrangement, why people break off contact with family members, and also reconciliation. I want to come to Dr. Carl Pilmer. He's a professor at Cornell University who we've been talking to. Uh, and we have a, a comment from Phoenix who writes, As a child, the adults in my life had major estrangement issues, and because of their discomfort with each other, I became estranged with my parents as well as two siblings. As an adult, I did the brave and satisfying work of rekindling those relationships. I can't describe the power and self-love I felt when I took charge and asked for those relationships back. And every other person involved thanked me so profusely for taking the leap. They too are grateful that we are together again. So stipulating that there are some types of relationships that will never be uh, reconciled. Dr. Pilmer, I wanted you to talk about how people go about uh, reconciling in these sort of less extreme situations. And I'll try to be brief, but, you know, people go through a a contemplation stage where they're talking about the kind of things we have been. Is this something I ought to do? After that, almost everyone in our studies who reconciled 
came to the conclusion that they had to let the past be the past and focus more on the future. So they realized that their narrative of what went on was never going to mesh entirely with the other person. Many people took that same kind of empowerment approach, and I love that example. I can show agency here in restoring this relationship. And I'll say this as my last point. People who reconciled learned that they could do so on their own terms. They created often one last chance offers to someone who was trying to get back into the relationship. And if that one last chance didn't work, then they did end it permanently. So people didn't re-enter the relationship as the same relationship. They put clear terms and conditions on it and were able to really make it work. And this was often true with siblings as well as parents and children. So I think that was a general pathway. It was understanding the causes, understanding the role that you might've played in it and setting very clear terms for what the new or renewed relationship was gonna look like. And I love that comment because it does show uh, um, you know, the hard work that some people do put into this and how great it is if it can work out. I want to bring Faz from San Francisco into the conversation. Welcome to the show, Faz. Yes, yes thank you so much. Uh, great uh, program. Uh, really, I'm learning and uh, understanding uh, so much with uh, all the comments. Uh, but my situation in particular, uh, being from Iran and being estranged uh, from my family, particularly since my father passed and my mom living in Iran and uh, going uh, through uh, her old uh, age, I mean, last quarter of her time, uh, and my both brothers in Tehran being in control, uh, my older brother acting as, as her husband <laughs> and taking the place of my father and basically cutting me off from... Uh, the uh, the uh, inheritance and basically saying, uh, oh, uh, you in U.S., you guys have everything. And uh, basically, because of the money issue, uh, taking this position and uh, me by living most of my life here in the U.S., uh, not being able to reconcile or being able to build this bridge between uh, between me and the rest of the family mm. uh, what do you <laughs> how do you how do you reconcile when there is a money issue how do you reconcile when there is such a strong issue that you know that they basically took advantage and they're not going to take they're not going to reposition themselves or change their opinion because uh, it's to their benefit yeah. Aretha, I want to ask you about that. You know, you're separated by uh, both, separated both by, you know, sort of geopolitical circumstance as well as the sort of, you know, small, well, maybe the the more, the practical, more personal uh, issues around money. Um, what's an approach there? Well, reconciliation takes two or more people. You can have one person who wants to make you know, that walk across the bridge and it's asking self, why? What am I hoping to get out of this? And if the other party doesn't want to engage, it is really asking self, well, is it time to sever the relationship? Because if the other party, whether we're talking about 
a wheel, money, land, grandma's dishes, um, what happened in 1965, 1972. If the other party doesn't see you, if they doesn't don't want to hear you, if they can't, then are you causing yourself more harm trying to have that conversation, have that relationship when the other person, other party isn't ready? Dr. Pilmer, did you have any specific um, advice around money issues, which do seem to drive a lot of conflict? It's so true that money may not be the root of all evil, but it is at the root of an extraordinary number of estrangements. Uh, I think that for the caller, one issue strikes me as geographical distance. So one of the things that people both who were estranged because of money issues and who had reconciled really felt that some kind of formal mediation would have helped early on in the process. Bringing in an outside person for a lot of them either was a magic bullet or would have been in their view. So when I asked them for their advice, that was one of the main ones. Many were very regretful about destroying the family over you know, grandma's Thanksgiving platter, which really is not too far-fetched. So unfortunately, I hate to put it this way, a time machine would be helpful you know, to go back and use some kind of formal mediation. But I also think it's very difficult over that kind of distance uh, to um, effect the reconciliation. And it might take actually in-person uh, work. I also think I'd ask the caller, you know, is there, and I think maybe Aretha was suggesting this, is there a long history of strong attachments, positive relationships, bonding, and this was more of a blip in the relationship. If it, in fact, is a sign of a long, and very difficult relationship, it's an example of it, then it would be harder, I think, to come about um, a reconciliation. Mm-hmm. A listener tweets, I'm estranged from my father. Actually, he's estranged from me. He cannot accept that I'm a lesbian. My father did ask my brother if he should come to see me a few years ago after I had almost died. It hurts at times, but I mostly don't focus on it. Paul writes, after estranging my mother over parenting differences, we reconnected through handwritten letters. This was easier for both of us. Finally, Jenny, I was estranged from my mother. It was the best thing I did. I probably would have ended up as an addict. Relatives criticized me for this, but I did it to protect myself. Let's bring in Paul from Richmond. Thanks for coming on. Hi, do you hear me? Yep, can hear you, Paul. Go ahead. So I've been estranged from my brother for about two years. Um, Roughly, like, after the incidents that happened in Charlottesville, he started espousing white supremacist views, um, and they just kind of became more and more violent. Um, And it's just been the last time we spoke, it got to a point where we kind of expressed desiring to do violence to one another because mm-hmm. of these views. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I'm wondering at what point, I think we both want to reconcile because we both call each other, but it's just hard for me to reconcile the concept that he has these views of violence mm-hmm. um, that are just, the opposite of who I am. What do you think um, led him down that path? Question. Do you know, Paul? I'm sorry? What do you think led him down that path? 
I think my father, my father, he has like these pretty extreme views, but I don't think he believes a lot of them. But my brother was a young kid um, and kind of took it to heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, I mean, it's to the point where he uses words that are very offensive. Um, it's a very extreme form of uh, white supremacist views that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I just don't even understand how I can talk to him or whether it's even worth engaging because I think at one point we both thought we could compartmentalize that. Like, these are our views, let's talk about. But it's not like we have a difference of opinion on fiscal conservatism. It's he thinks a certain people are mm-hmm. less than him. And that just doesn't seem, I can't reconcile that with him. Yeah. Dr. Sharp, um, what do we do in situations like this? You know, I was actually thinking that maybe I wasn't the best person to answer <laughs> this particular one because I'll, I'm, I always, I'm always forthcoming. Like I'm not a clinician. Um, yeah. I'm a, a, a researcher and I try to maybe not give as much advice because I'm not a clean, trained clinician. So I think I'd probably rather hear from um, Aretha. Sure, we can. Aretha, what do you think? This would be a great opportunity to start family therapy. Mm-hmm. So you and your brother sitting down with someone who can help you to unravel the messages that you heard as children and the different paths that you took and support you in finding a common space to sit emotionally and talk and then decide and help you to decide if you can have a relationship and what that relationship is built upon. Yeah. Let's go to uh, Makila in Berkeley. Hi, I'm calling because, you know, as I approach 50, I'm starting to recognize that the relationship with my parents is toxic. Um, My mother always convinced us that a lot of the problems and issues and, you know, bad parenting in our lives had to do with my father's alcoholism. But uh, after working with a therapist, I'm realizing that I actually have a lot of PTSD, not just from him, but also from my mother, who was, who is a narcissist. And, you know, even these interactions I have with her now are very much, you know, textbook. Like I've I've read books where it's just descriptive of exactly what, you know, she just continues to do. And no matter how many times my sister and I will kind of try to confront her and bring her to some kind of shared truth about how she treats us, she always, you know, turns it back on us as if we're attacking her. Now, I have two children, um, and my parents have wanted to have a relationship with them and wanted to interact with them. But I can see my mother already starting to do the things that she did to me, you know, preferring one child over the other, isolating that child, um, saying things to undermine that child and make herself seem more important. And I really want to cut her off, really want to cut her off. But I don't think that my sister would ever forgive me. And I know that I would not be able to have a relationship with my father. So I'm kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily, they don't live nearby. Um, but, you know, there are my family. You know, I'm Asian. And um, they have a lot of demands that ha- they have put 
in me. Like, I, you know, we need to see each other. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I just feel a lot of guilt and responsibility around it. But mm-hmm. I just, I don't really know. I mean, I'm working with a therapist, which is great. But it's still really challenging to try and figure out where to draw the boundaries with her because she's always, she's just always blowing past them. Yeah. And when we're together in person, now that I know more about myself and my experience with her, it's super hard to be around her. Yeah. Thank you, Mikhail, for, for sharing that with us. Um, Dr. Pilmer, this goes to a question that I had about your the interviews you did and the research, which is what about people who did decide to cut somebody off and decided it was a good idea or people who didn't and then regretted that they hadn't cut somebody off? Did you run into anybody like that in your research? Yeah, um, you know, it's actually remarkable and I think it would be another great study is people who stay engaged with family members who are incredibly difficult because that was also something else I found. Um, if I could elect this, I just wanted to mention one thing specifically regarding that caller. Um, I don't have my own advice, but the one thing that we asked the several hundred people that we interviewed in depth was what their advice is. Their piece of advice for someone in that situation, especially if you feel like you want some relationship with grandchildren and parents, is to consider reestablishing the relationship, but under extremely specific conditions, laying out what the parent is allowed to do and what not to do, and making it extremely clear that the relationship will be permanently over if those boundaries are violated. Uh, There are some examples in the book of people who had pretty awful parents who honestly, they had leverage because the parents wanted to see the grandchildren. And as one woman told me, my mother had, was able to change her behavior and never did before this. So one thing people could do before they give up is offer a chance at reconciliation under highly specific and maybe with the help of somebody like Aretha and see if that works. I think that you do encounter some anticipated regret if you don't give it one shot, again, holding aside people who are really dangerous and damaging. So I think that that would be one you know, strategy for that caller is you try it out, but under highly specific conditions, mm-hmm. if it doesn't work, then that's it. Thank you for that. Let's uh, spend a heavy hour. Let's go to Susan in Stanford. Hi. Um, I'm 75, but when I was 22... My mother, from whom I was estranged, she was a very good Mormon, and she had called me such names as the spirit of the devil, and she called the university I was going to uh, the realm of the devil, and and we had separated because I had um, I left the church because of their racial policies, and you know that that was it for her. So that was that really separated us. And she called me one day and said, would you meet me for coffee? Well, that was an interesting thing because Mormons don't drink coffee and she had given it up. And and I said, sure. And and she said to me, if if I never bring up the church to you, can we be friends? And I said, well, of course. And it completely changed our lives. She stuck to that personal policy. 
And we were the best of friends till she died at the age of 77. And I'm almost there myself. And I, she was a wonderful friend. And it brings me to tears to even tell this story. So talk about the world's best reconciliation. That was it for me. Uh, that is a nice place for us to end. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Susan, for sharing that story. And I'm so glad you got to spend so much great time with your mom as your best friend. Yeah. Um, it's, in fact, my own mom's birthday today, and I wanted to give her a shout-out. And we are not estranged, quite happily. We talk all the time. We have been talking about family estrangement and why people break off contact with family members with Carl Pillimer, professor at Cornell University and author of Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Christina Sharp, director of the Family Communication and Relationships Lab at the University of Washington. And Aretha Hampton, a licensed clinical social worker and sole proprietor of Roots Consultation Services in Berkeley. You've been listening to Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2. New Folsom, a story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.